all do what we can to take care of ourselves and we want to stay healthy and I like to live a long time. So I go for walks in the morning or hikes and uh, through the woods over to park close to the house. I get up in the morning and my beard is just facing all kinds of different directions. It's a complete mess. I don't want to take a shower just so I can go out and sweat. So I just take off and uh, I'll go out to the woods and I try to find a place where I can not be seen by folks. I don't want to terrify anybody or anything. But the other day I was hiking around and I had on my work shirt. It's covered in sweat. I've been hiking for probably 90 minutes and it's 90 something degrees. It's really, really hot and sweaty all the way through. And I came out of the woods and there was a car going by on the road and the car stops and I see the driver's side window roll down. Walk up that direction and when I get up there, I hear somebody say, hey Otis. And I look in and there's a real nice guy in there. That, uh, I think his name was Greg. I apologize if I don't remember correctly. But he's telling me like the Dave Von Rock episode. And I'm just out of breath <laughs> trying to cool down a little bit and get into the conversation. And he's being really nice. And I look into the back seat of his car and there's two kids, very young kids. And they're looking at me and they're just staring. And I can tell they're thinking, do you know this man, daddy? And I mean, I look like hell coming out of the woods. And uh, they have that look of terror in their eyes where they're not sure whether this is a hostage situation or a Bigfoot sighting. And Anyway, uh, he said a few nice words to me and went on his way. And um, like I said, I love it when people stop and say hey to me. I, you know, Sometimes it happens at the park. It's great. But I just want everybody to understand that if you stop off, I'm not responsible for any future therapy that your kids might have to undergo for the next 20 years of their life to erase this terrifying memory. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Elijah Wald. Elijah is a writer, a musician, and a cultural historian. You can find out everything you need to know about Elijah at ElijahWald.com. Elijah's written a book called Dylan Goes Electric, and I highly recommend everybody pick up a copy. If you're listening to this show, I think you'll definitely appreciate that book. But we met up at a hotel room in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he was nice enough to share some great stories. There's Elijah Wald. Dylan never put away the acoustic guitar. I mean, if Dylan's next record was on acoustic guitar, it wouldn't surprise anybody. He, he has 
you know, one of the weird things about Dylan is it's not, you know, Dylan has in some ways gotten more and more retro through his career. I mean, the idea that he started folky and then got experimental um, does, you know, there's, there's a period where he's singing old folk songs, but it's virtually like age 19 through age 21. I mean, it's not a very long period in his life. <laughs> But that has remained his reference point ever since. And um, no, I mean, he goes electric basically because he can. You know, he, of course, had an electric band in high school, but he made an electric single in 62 before Freewheeling came out, you know, mixed up confusion. You know, the other thing is it's really, really easy to forget how few years we're talking about. I mean, he does mixed up confusion. I guess it's end of 61 coming out, you know, like December 61 or January 62. By 65, he's doing Bring It All Back Home and he's electric again. I mean, we're talking maybe three years where he's really not doing electric. You know, I think a lot of the confusion about Dylan going electric is that there were a lot of people who heard Dylan through Peter, Paul, and Mary and thought of Dylan as playing that pretty quiet, folky stuff like Peter, Paul, and Mary play. But that was never, you know, I mean, I guess another side of Bob Dylan and, and a few songs on freewheeling fit into sort of the pretty folky kind of sound. But he was always more of a blues guy than a folk guy in his own playing. And the fact that it included some electric blues pretty soon. Uh, you know, it's funny. The moment that he went electric, there's this interview with him um, from shortly after Newport in 1965, where somebody says, you know, does it bother you that your fans are so upset? And he says, those people aren't my fans. Those are the people who just discovered me in the last couple of years. My fans aren't upset by this. And, and my experience is that's pretty much true. I mean, everybody who knew and liked Dylan's music as of the first album um, were completely... I mean, the first album, he's already... Highway 51, he's already doing Wake Up Little Susie. That's the guitar riff on Highway 51. I mean, the fact that Dylan was into rock and roll. It's, this is one of the crazy things that I hadn't noticed. I mean, the liner notes to his first album list his influences as Woody Guthrie, Jelly Roll Morton, Hank Williams, Carl Perkins, and early Elvis Presley. So, you know, the people who knew him in that period were neither surprised nor upset. The people who were surprised and upset were the people who thought of him as the guy who writes those pretty songs for Peter, Paul, and Mary. Dylan didn't feel like he fit in any box, but fair is fair. I mean, he made the choice to be on the road and dating and associated with Joan Baez. And Joan Baez was the figure of folk purity, not just musically, but morally and politically. Joan was, you know, the Virgin Joan. And she wasn't particularly happy with that box either. But God knows they, you know, she did take the politics very, very seriously. It wasn't just a photo op to her. 
No, and it wasn't just a photo up to him. I mean, he, this, you know, the thing I think about Dylan is the way the Dylan story has tended to be written, in my experience, is by the people who loved the fact that he'd gone electric and got to feel smarter than the stupid folkies. And I sympathize with them. I agree with them to a great extent. But that was 1965, 66, 67. And, you know, first of all, the people who booed Dylan at Newport, I've talked to a number of people who actually were booing Dylan at Newport, and they all were fans again, you know, within a month. I mean, they were upset about the fact that he was destroying the festival, which he did. I mean, this is the thing that people leave out of the story. That, I mean, Newport was this amazing festival of a kind we have never had since. And when Dylan went electric, it destroyed it. Um, that was the end. It, it sort of struggled on, limped on for another couple of years. But this world where you could go, and it basically was not about egos, and you would see Joan Baez, you know, singing back up or clapping along or whatever with people you'd never heard of and Pete Seeger playing banjos for the square dancers. And it really was kind of egoless and people getting together because to, they loved the music and discovering people like Doc Watson and Mississippi John Hurt. And Dylan walking in and treating it like a platform for him to be a rock star brought a whole new audience who were there to hear the rock star and didn't care about old banjo players. And it destroyed that world. And an awful lot of people still think of themselves as people who are all on Dylan's side and are all for the revolutionary and whatever, and also love old banjo playing and hate pop music. And those two positions don't really work for 1965 and Newport. I mean, if, what, if you hate the pop charts and love weird music, Dylan was a problem. Can we talk about that day? Yeah. There's a lot of mythology. You know, the folklore that floats around of Pete Seeger trying to cut a power cord or something. Um, yeah, that's not true. But it, but that he was angry enough that he would have is true. I mean, Pete Seeger, you know, Pete Seeger's dream was being destroyed right there on stage before his eyes. And, you know, you can't expect him to be cheerful about that. You know, his belief that Dylan as an artist had to pursue his art doesn't necessarily mean that Dylan as an artist had to destroy Newport in order to do it. <laughs> Who else was on the bill that day? Everybody. I mean, the world was on the bill that day. That night, um, I don't remember the full lineup. It had started uh, the Butterfield Blues Band, followed by Mance Lipscomb, um, the Beers family, who nobody remembers, but they played real sort of pretty rural music with a psaltery Look it up. It starts with a P, P-S-A-L-T-E-R-Y. You'll never see a psaltery outside of the Beers family. Cousin Emmy, uh, who had been one of the first stars of country music and 
who was up there backed by the New Lost City Ramblers. She was playing banjo, fiddle, harmonica, and for a grand finale played Turkey in the Straw, slapping it on her cheeks. And she was actually the last act before Dylan. And then Dylan comes on, and then after him come the moving star hall singers from the Georgia Sea Islands, Black Camp Meeting, Circle Shout, uh, traditional a cappella singers. And then there was a break, and then there was a Nigerian dance group, Gene Ritchie, uh, Len Chandler, someone who should be better remembered. He was, along with Dylan, one of the top political songwriters in the broadside magazine click. Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, leader of the Mississippi Freedom Struggle, up there leading a, a chorus singing freedom songs. And Peter, Paul, and Mary were the closing act. I, I, there were some other acts that I'm not remembering, but that gives you a sense of who was on. That's just the evening concert. I mean, there had already been all the afternoon concerts, and it was Sunday, so they, they'd started off with a religious concert in the morning. Well, can you describe Dylan's set? And I'm curious also if the a cappella group after him, what the, if the, they got the audience back? or They did get the audience back, um, but that's a little complicated because a bunch of people left. I mean, uh, like I say, part of the problem, and uh, this is the sort of thing that people leave out of the story, part of the problem was not Dylan. Part of the problem was all of these um, pop fans who had showed up at Newport just to hear Dylan, who was the new hot pop star, and who had been really being annoying. I mean, they'd been essentially running around drinking beer and, and being noisy and, and dissing all the other acts. The and the they stayed around to hear Dylan and then split. I mean, you know, two or 3,000 people left the minute Dylan went off stage. And so, I mean, that's part of what people were booing was not so much Dylan as his stupid fans. Um, Dylan set, he came on with a Butterfield Blues Band. They were very unrehearsed. It was, if you actually listen to a tape of the set, they do three songs and it takes them, I forget exactly, but it's like 18 minutes. I mean, they're like three or four minutes, two or three minutes between every song. Dylan, who, and this is another thing, Dylan had always been a really engaging performer. If you look at the films of Dylan earlier at Newport, or particularly if you listen to the concert recordings from earlier, he'd been funny, he'd been chatty. I mean, people were used to Dylan doing a good show, and he did not say a word. I mean, Dylan is just standing there tuning and waiting for the band and tuning and waiting for the band and doing a song, and then for two or three minutes, he's tuning and waiting for the band. And the band, I mean, they sounded great on some songs and not so great on other songs. I mean, they did three songs. They did Maggie's Farm, which sounds pretty great. I mean, that's a terrific version of Maggie's Farm. They do a perfectly adequate version of Like a Rolling Stone. And then they did this thing called Phantom Engineer, which was a, a fast thing that he later slowed down into Takes a Lot to Laugh, Takes a Train to Cry. But Phantom Engineer was a, a high-speed boogie, but with weird time, and the band completely didn't get it. And so every time around, you listen to see where they're going to make the chord change with him this time, and they miss it every time. Um, and then he left. 
and after only three songs. And one of the things a lot of people get wrong is that they've all seen the film. And the film, he does Maggie's Farm, and then you hear all these people booing. But that's a splice. The booing is all the people booing because he had left the stage after only three songs. It, the booing, I mean, there were people who were booing because he'd gone electric, but they were not enough of them or loud enough to be captured on tape. So in order to create the illusion that it was captured on tape, they splice in the booing from Dylan having left after only three songs. <laughs> All of Newport was being recorded by Vanguard Records, who put out records every year of, of sort of highlights of the Newport Folk Festival. And it was also all being filmed with multiple cameras for a documentary that was going to happen at some point. But I mean, 63, 64, 65, 66, virtually everything that happened was filmed at professional level and everything that happened was recorded at professional stereo, ready for album release quality. Like I say, um, when Dylan went electric, it kind of ruined that scene. I mean, there were probably, I forget how many albums Vanguard released from 63 and 64, but it was six or eight or 10 LPs for each of those festivals. 65, they released one LP, Nobody bought it, and that was the end of Newport Folk Festival recordings being released until the CD era when they began mining the vaults and released some more stuff. But, I mean, Newport simply had ceased to be the cutting edge, you know, as of that night. I mean, the film came out, Festival came out, um, and that did have the Dylan going electric moment included in it. So it's not like people didn't have a chance to see that pretty soon. I mean, that came out in 67. Um, Dylan set the recordings, um, I don't think were even available as a bootleg. And Phantom Engineer still hasn't been officially released. All we have is Maggie's Farm. I mean, you can get everything now on the internet. But um, all that's been officially released is Maggie's Farm and Like a Rolling Stone. You know, not because it doesn't exist. Uh, partly because... I don't understand exactly how all the contractual stuff goes, but um, I think Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, was exercising a fair amount of control. So, for example, the Newport Folk Festival records um, never include Peter, Paul, and Mary. Their rights were not signed away to Vanguard. So all that stuff exists on tape but never got released. And Dylan, you know, I mean as long as it was good for Dylan's career for bits of Dylan's sets to be on the Vanguard albums. He's there. But all you get is him. You get his duet with Pete Seeger on Playboys and Playgirls Ain't Gonna Run My World and him leading the whole crowd singing Blowing in the Wind. But the basic Dylan sets, they were keeping back because, you know, they wanted that stuff. Yeah, Dylan said he was booed off stage. Um, I mean, I think Dylan sincerely believes he was booed off stage. And, you know, it's not entirely untrue in the sense that there were some people booing, but the fact is he only had three songs prepared. And the booing was mostly because he'd only done three songs. And then, you know, 
uh, Peter Yarrow, who was emceeing, saw that he was going to have a riot on his hands if Dylan didn't come back and begged him to come back. And he came back by himself with an acoustic guitar, not because they were demanding that he not use the band anymore, but because he didn't have anything more rehearsed with the band. And if he was going to come back, it was going to be with an acoustic guitar. But, you know, I should say Peter Yarrow had dealt with the same problem the previous year. Dylan in 64 didn't go electric, but did finish his set and the crowd went completely nuts. And Odetta was supposed to actually poor Dave Van Ronk was supposed to come up and then Odetta. And the crowd simply would not let the show continue until Peter Yarrow brought Dylan back for another song or two. So, I mean, the idea that Dylan brought the thing to a halt and had to come back to do a couple more songs had already happened in 64. I mean, honestly, what happened was uh, I wrote a book called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. And so in uh, February of... 2014 I started getting all these calls from people saying you know it's the anniversary of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show uh, you know essentially we've run out of stories to do can you do the anti-Beatles story for us and it suddenly occurred to me that Dylan going electric at Newport was about to have its 50th anniversary and if I could get a book out in six months I could probably find a market for that because it was a big moment and it was really a commercial choice. I mean, the way my career works is I write about a lot of stuff that's not commercial. And the only way to subsidize that is to once in a while get a book out that somebody buys. And this seemed like an a obvious one because, you know, with the Dave Van Rock stuff, you know, I, I knew all the people from the folk scene. I had the phone numbers. Um, I had a lot of the research already done. And honestly, I went into it thinking I would just do it quick and dirty and get it out. But then once I started researching it, I got more and more and more interested. And pretty soon was going much deeper into the Dylan story and also the Pete Seeger story than I had expected to go because I was just finding how much I had not understood. I mean, I just kept hitting things that I thought I knew what was going on and it turned out that I had no idea and so I had to look at it some more. Have you gotten any reaction from either from Dylan's camp or from Pete Seeger's family? Um, I've heard some positive stuff from the Seeger world. The Dylan world, no. I mean, the, you know, the, I mean, there are 20 Dylan books a year. He does not have time to keep up with them. Um, I mean, the Dylan, I, you know, Dylan's office was extremely helpful. I have to say, you know, I, I called Jeff Rosen, who's Dylan's manager, right at the beginning. He got right back to me and I said, I don't need to talk to Bob, but this is what I do need. And all he wanted to hear was that I didn't need to talk to Bob and he was willing <laughs> to do anything else to be helpful to the project. It's a good lesson to learn there. Which included stuff like, I mean, the afternoon set that, Dylan did at Newport in 65 has never been bootlegged and you know even the hardcore nuts have never heard it and it's in the vanguard vaults 
And Vanguard said, we can't give you that without permission from Dylan's people. And Dylan's people gave permission without a second thought and got me that set. And it actually was really interesting because the story is that, of course, the folkies at Newport hated his electric stuff. So it was interesting to hear that Saturday afternoon, the day before he went electric, when he does his acoustic set, everybody's yelling for like a Rolling Stone. So it's like, okay, so no, the audience he was getting at Newport wanted that. <laughs> it has to feel pretty rewarding to be able to, to hear this recording that only a handful of people have heard. Oh, yeah. No, no, it was a fun project. Something Absolutely. you've earned also. But I mean, every project is, you know, the, the pleasure of doing any project is the research. Uh, you, you always find cool stuff. Um, and as I say, you know, it's the pleasure of sort of finding all the places where you thought you understood it and you find out you're wrong and, and go back and try to figure out what really happened. And, you know, that's the fun part. And I really appreciate you taking time to chat with me. And uh, I appreciate you sharing the stories. My pleasure. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Elijah for meeting up with me in that hotel room in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Elijah at ElijahWald.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.